Yeah, it's been seven and a half years here, two-ish with COVID, during which time 60% of pastors quit in Oregon, if you didn't know. <laughs> and before that, I've actually been in ministry for 17 years total, and this is my first sabbatical and first break. So I don't even know what to do with that. I'm discovering I'm not great at receiving. Uh, I like to give it out, but it's harder to receive it sometimes. So thank you so, so much. Um, it's, it's a really timely thing for me, and I'm really, really grateful. So did not anticipate having to preach after <laughs> that, but um, we're going to do it. So is this okay, Phil? Am I in the right spot? Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> Oh, well, today we are starting a prayer series, and I was thinking about this huge topic of prayer, and I thought of my brother's girlfriend, and I reached out to her and asked if I could share this, and she gave me permission, but exactly one year ago today, on Mother's Day, she went to my brother's church for one of the first times, and they had just started recently dating they were still getting to know each other, and he invited her to his church. And as she was telling me the story, she hadn't been to church in a very, very long time and was really nervous to go because the last time she had gone to church over a decade ago had not gone well. She'd had a little baby at the time. She didn't feel welcome. And, oh golly, are we okay? <laughs> and she had left in tears. And so to come back, as some of you know, who have had this type of situation, it took a lot of courage, took a lot of risk. And it's Mother's Day, which I think we all collectively can say is one of the most tender holidays in the calendar. And it's always tricky when I, when I worked at a church for 17 Mother's Days to know how to do that well and how to honor these moms who work so dang hard. <laughs> and have such demanding but rewarding jobs, and also acknowledge that this day pushes on a lot of tender spots for a lot of people. And so she goes, it's like her third or fourth time going to church. She goes, she comes in like this, and they instantly, like kind of near the beginning, pray for single moms. And my brother's girlfriend is a single mom of then, last year, a 13-year-old. And by the end of the service, she is undone because she feels so seen because somebody prayed for her. And by the end of the service, she was just kind of a pile of tears. And the pastor, noticing a new person, comes over to her. And this is the beauty of like small church because <laughs> you can see, you can notice people, right? And he just says, are you okay? Like thinking something is wrong. And she's like, no, I'm great. It just was so nice to be prayed for. And then he invited them over for a barbecue and cornhole. <laughs> and I'm like, that is, that is a good pastor. And so, and they're still going to this church a year later. And it's just a beautiful reminder that prayer matters. And so today we kick off a month-long prayer series. And it's going to look like this. Week one today, talking to God. Next Sunday, talking with God. And then, because we're not very good at this, week three, listening to God and then finally, being with God. And these are not linear stages of prayer that we just kind of like check the box and go. These are just more dimensions of prayer that we were going to revisit and visit over and over again throughout our life as followers of Jesus. And sometimes they all happen kind of simultaneously. 
kind of like grief, there's no stages. You just kind of come in and out. And so from the top, I want to just have some acknowledgments. The first is this, that we live in one of the most difficult times in all of history to pray. And I don't mean just necessarily what's going on in the world, because I think of like my grandma who like had babies during World War II, and they probably thought then the world was on fire. You know, she's got food rations and no car and walking everywhere. And I don't mean that necessarily. I mean, it's hard to pray because the smartphone has been a death blow to prayer. And I'm on my phone all the time, so I say this like as my own struggle as well. We have so much information all the time. We, people have access to us 24-7, and the pace of life is so fast that it's really, really hard to pray. In fact, I find that I will Google things. <laughs> Did you ever do that where you just like type in like your prayer request to Google almost? And what's scary and crazy is it pops up like the whole sentence before I'm even done typing. It's like someone else has thought this too. You know, what to do when you need to tell someone they're tone deaf and they can't make worship team or, you know what I mean? Don't worry, that hasn't happened here. There's another church. <laughs> but if you struggle to pray, you are not alone. Prayer is relationship. We are not born, we don't come out of the womb just excellent communicators. We have to learn it, practice it, actually care about it, and then intentionally do it. In fact, when my husband and I do premarital counseling with couples, the very first session, other than like, why do you want to get married to this person, is communication. Because communication will inform every other aspect of their life together. And so we know, I think we all would collectively say, we know we're supposed to pray. We know this is like one of the bedrock foundations of being a follower of Jesus. And we know that Scripture is full. I could list like a hundred. If you want to go to the next slide, Dan, thank you. I could list hundreds of verses from in the Bible that talk about prayer. It's one of the things Jesus talks about the most. And we know we're not supposed to be anxious or worry. We know that the Spirit thankfully helps us when we don't know what to pray. It says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit joins us and gives deep groanings because we don't even have words. I had a situation like that this week where I'm like, Holy Spirit, you have to pray because I cannot come up with my own words. We know we're supposed to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another and that the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. And we hear verses like, call to me and I will answer you. Ask and it will be given. Knock and the door will be open to you. And the Psalms are filled with people crying out to God over and over again in prayer. So I think we have this one side where we know it's good. We know we're supposed to do it. We know it's like mega important. And then we also have this other side that feels like, am I getting the return for my investment? Does it actually matter? And I love that the Bible is a lot more honest about disillusionment and discouragement than we often are, I think, like in our present day. The prophets do a lot of complaining, a lot of question asking. The Psalms, we know, are filled with lament, like just why? And the great heroes of faith all seem to be okay with bringing their raw, vulnerable selves before God. So the people we look up to in the Bible were incredibly full of hope and incredibly honest at the same time. That is this balance that I wanna strike where I have like wild hope in Jesus incredible hope in Jesus and also 
am very specific in my prayers and honest about how hard it is. So these are some of my own personal fears about praying. I'll just tell you, maybe uh, this will be like Google and I will find I'm not alone. <laughs> you guys will relate. What if it doesn't happen? What if you were raised in what's known as prosperity gospel, where it's like name it and claim it and it's going to happen? And not that there's anything wrong with declaring things, because we do need to declare some things. And we are speaking today to like the powers and principalities of the world. It's a heavy deal. But what happens when you pray for something, when you pray for healing for someone who has cancer, and then it doesn't happen? I believe God is good, but I often think he won't do this for me. Somehow in my messed up theology, I'll think he'll do it for someone else, but why would he do it for me? And I start to think maybe he's withholding good from me. So I'm often afraid of asking because I don't want to be let down or somehow have my faith be diminished if the miracle doesn't happen. So I don't ask. One of my very first jobs in college was um, being a work-study student in the music department. It was a great job. I loved being around music. And my very first day of my job, my boss, Jan, she goes, can you start a pot of coffee? And I'm like, I have no idea how to make coffee. <laughs> I know this seems like a basic American task. <laughs> I have no idea like what to do with the little paper filter. I don't know. I literally know you plug it in. That's it. And she looked at me like, are you serious? How do you not know how to make coffee? Well, when I was growing up, my mom is a huge tea drinker. She's from South Africa where they drink tea like water. And we didn't own a coffee pot. I didn't register for one when I got married. I knew nothing about coffee. And so she had to teach me this thing that I thought like, man, I should know this, how to make coffee every day. Now, don't worry, I have a Keurig. And then my husband for Christmas got me an espresso, God bless him. And now I see what all the fuss is about. It's great. I'm addicted. It's fine. And I think kind of how we all assume that everyone's eating vegetables, we just assume everyone's praying. But the reality is it is, it is a beautiful mystery, and it's hard, and it's good. It's complicated, and it's easy. And so there's, there's this misconception that everyone knows how to do it better than me. And so we get discouraged. I think that leads to insecurity and shame and not asking for help. So we just worry more and pray less. And the disciples were kind of in the same boat. They had access to Jesus. They were like VIP right there. And they saw him going away often and praying. And so one day, they finally, like I had to do with my boss, say, I don't know how to do this. And so they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And that is what we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Luke chapter 11, 1 through 4. And this is Jesus's teaching on prayer. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And it says this, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now flip back a couple books to Matthew, 
the very first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And you're going to see almost the same language. This is Jesus in what is known as one of his most famous teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is tucked in there, and it's almost identical. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus says this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't give us a lot of formula for things. I think personally, I, he, I think he knew we would mess it up <laughs> if we did. We are master manipulators, right? That's, there's that saying, the heart is a human like idol factory or something to that effect. And you know, I mean, I was thinking Jesus probably thought, well, look what I did. Look what happened when I gave them this Sabbath, this beautiful gift. And now, you know, and, and if you read the gospels and read the New Testament, that went sideways because people started being really nitpicky with each other about it to the point that they wouldn't even give people grain on the Sabbath. And so here, his disciples are genuinely, humbly asking, Lord, teach us to pray. They see Jesus go off on his own often, and they want to know, how do you do this? What are you saying? How does this go? And so this prayer, which we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer, or for Catholics, they call it the Our Father, is about 52 words, and some people, some theologians say it encompasses the whole gospel. And so today, as we begin a prayer series, it seems fitting that we should start with how Jesus taught us to pray. And so we're just going to look at lines. Honestly, whole entire sermon series have been preached. They break every line up. We're going to kind of just zoom in today from a 10,000-foot view and look at these incredible lines that Jesus taught us how to pray. The first line is this, our Father in heaven. It doesn't say my Father. It says our Father, the collective global church, past and present, who has prayed this prayer for thousands of years. It's the family of God. It's the thing that I believe in. We are not alone. We are connected to brothers and sisters, our siblings in Christ, who have also struggled to pray. And we're invited into relationship with both the living God and the communion of saints. I continually say, I do not know how people do life without Jesus and without the body of Christ. It is real hard. And so it says, our father, this plural statement, our father. One of the things that we know Jesus asked a lot is, who do you say I am? Who am I to you? A.W. You Tozer said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you think about the Lord, when you think about Jesus, what are the synonyms that go through your mind? And don't feel bad about it. What are the gut impulses that come to your mind? It makes sense that Jesus would start how to pray with our image of God because that's where the enemy started in warping the whole of creation. Does God really love you? Did he really say that? And kind of like when I'm praying, does God want to withhold good from me? All these questions, this, these doubts come up. And so Jesus begins prayer by restoring our image of God. It's really cool to look at Hebrew. This is why people study and geek out on this stuff because 
the original language is so rich. The primary emotional word used for God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in Hebrew means compassionate. It's actually the meaning of my youngest daughter's name because I felt like God was so compassionate to us in her birth. In Hebrew, this word means the feeling that a father, or more specifically, a mother has toward their infant child. And that is God's baseline emotional disposition towards you. Compassion, delight, tender care. I would do anything for you. I love you just because you exist. The second line, hallowed be your name. We don't, I don't walk around saying hallow. <laughs> but hallow, most, if you have a, maybe New Living or other translations, it will say holy is your name. That's the best way we can describe it in English. To revere and respect the holiness of God. And if, if you notice in this prayer, the first half of it, the first beginning lines are all about positioning and orientation. Like, how am I coming into this prayer? And this line, I really think, is where it talks about our posture, where we need to think of God correctly. If you, how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon in here? Can I just say, like, oh, wow, a lot of people, okay. Maybe you had this feeling when you stare at the Grand Canyon, like, wow, holy is God. He is, I don't even have words. It's just awe-inspiring to think that, that he could make this creation. Or maybe you think that in the summer, and we, you guys, we've made it. We have made it through the dreary horribleness of Oregon winters. And I, I just feel happier right now, just a lot happier with my vitamin D. And I just think, I look outside and I think, Lord, like you've created these fields. You've created these sunsets. It's that feeling that you know that you are small and God is big, and it's the best feeling of being small. Like, I feel it in Montana. It just feels... That's why people there say it's God's country that are from there. And so this holiness, this hallowedness, it, it lets us know that there is no other name like the name of Jesus. Nothing else like it. And then we finally, in the third line, get to kind of some nitty-gritty in the prayer. Some requests are being made. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love that Rich Fiotis says this line of the Lord's Prayer is not so much about resignation, like, oh, well, like whatever's going to happen, kind of like God winds a clock up and just lets the world go, like good luck. It's not so much about resignation as much as participation, that we are invited into this kingdom coming right now on earth as it is in heaven. This tension of... Like, how much do I depend on God and how much is dependent on me? I mean, that's a daily tension, right? Like, what do I do? Do I just, like, let God do it all? Or how much is my role in this? And I just had to get, share this quote with you because I cannot say it any better. And this is by Tony Evans. And this is what he says about this tension. To use available means without prayer is to be self-sufficient. I'm going to read it slow. So if we use available means... Without prayer, I'm trying to be self-sufficient. To pray and not use available means is to be irresponsible. You are to trust God through prayer and then function in prudence. That means like doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. Using all available means he has made available to you. To put it another way, we are never to allow this idea of dependence upon God to promote irresponsibility 
of behavior. So God is sovereign. He's in control. He wants you to participate through prayer and prudence. Prayer tunes you into his purpose. Prayer lets you participate in the fulfilling of that purpose. I could read that like over and over again about so many things. So I have a question for you. What are the things that you hold the most tightly to that you try to control? That maybe that would be the first thing that you're Googling. If you're like, how do, what happens? What are the things that you feel like you have a grip on that are really hard to surrender to the Lord and say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I, I thought about just asking you to shout them out, but I don't, it's all right, I won't do it. I'll just tell you mine. I'll, I'm, just, I'm in a vulnerable mood. It's, I got a break tomorrow. So. <laughs> the three biggies for me are my kids, finances, also taxes were terrible this year, and my health. My kids, finances, health. I'm sure there's more, but these are the ones that I just have like a bodily reaction to. Like I can somehow like Olivia it into <laughs> figuring it out. I can, I can work hard enough. I can find connections. I can do something to control this situation and make it better. To the point that even recently, uh, I talked to one of my kids' teachers about the situation and they said, do you think this is the first time that your child has actually had to struggle academically? I was like, okay, maybe I'm trying to control things. <laughs> and they're like, is it okay if they struggle? I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> so what are those things for you? This is when, instead of this being our reaction to worry, to research, to Google, to all of the things that our default needs to be to ask the Lord, to say, your will be done. And I think those, the questions I try to ask are, what do you want me to know about this situation? And what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to know about this situation? And what do you want me to do about it? I've mentioned in here before that I have a heart condition. And years ago, when I got diagnosed with it, I was trying to do that scramble of trying to find a good cardiologist. I was in my 30s. I'm like, I need a cardiologist. This is so weird. And at the time, I reached out in prayer to my college girlfriends. I have, we have a group text. They're like the dearest people in the world. And we just kind of SOS each other whenever there's hard things and good things to celebrate in life. And so I reached out to them, forgetting in my mind that one of my college girlfriends' dad was a cardiologist. I didn't even think about it. I didn't really know him super well in college. And so she replies to me, hey, I'm going to talk to my dad about this and find out, like, there are some good people in the area that could help you. And so she reaches out to her dad, who was retiring at the time, and he said, I'm literally, like, ending this month, but I have an amazing lady who is also a believer in Jesus and a mom and, like, puts hearts in people for her job. It's brilliant. And she will see you pro bono for free for a second opinion. I was like, how is this even possible? This is that tension of like, what do you want me to know about this situation? Is there anything you want me to do? Do I need to do anything? And kind of sifting through all of this, using available means, but depending on God completely. And so I went to see her with my husband. She was incredible. I liked her way better than my other cardiologist, but I couldn't see her. She couldn't become my main doctor because it was out of network. We had a different insurance. 
And I just thought, well, I'm just going to take this one time I get here. And she gave me an hour of her time, just a lot in the medical world. So years, a couple years pass. My husband's insurance at his work just changed recently. And now I can go see this lady. And now she's my cardiologist. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this incredible gift. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The next line, give us today our daily bread. This 24 hours. The miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle, aside from Holy Week and the resurrection, that we see in all four Gospels. It's the only one. It's very interesting. And I've heard and read different theologians say, why is that? Why is the feeding of the 5,000 in every single Gospel? And this is what I've listened to theologians and historians say. Food scarcity was a huge, huge deal in the New Testament. They, people that have researched the demographics at that time say 25% of the Roman Empire was sick, dying, or in need of immediate medical attention at the time of the feeding of the 5,000. They were dying by starvation and malnutrition, and the life expectancy was very young. And so Jesus says this line in prayer, give us today our daily bread. And if you can imagine when he was saying that, that's the thing that people needed most was daily bread. And it's also interesting because if you read the, the Old Testament, there's this incredible story of the Israelites of God providing manna, which is this bread-like substance that literally rains down from heaven when they're wandering in the desert, starving. And it happens every single day. It's wild. And of course, the people, which I would have been this, this person, they start to hoard the manna. They start to try to save it, thinking, what if it doesn't come tomorrow? Well, at least I have something saved. And if you know the story, it rots. It doesn't even last. And the, the manna from today is not meant to be the manna tomorrow. And I'm thinking, when I read that story, I would have been like, where is the Costco in the desert? Where is the bulk-sized manna so I can have the comfort and the security of knowing that my daily bread is actually my weekly and my monthly bread, that I've got plenty of stock? But that is not what Jesus says to pray. And the emphasis says, give us. That's another plural word. It doesn't say, give me my daily bread, give us our daily bread. And so when I see this line, I think, Lord, provide for both my needs and my loved ones. Like, fill in the blank on this slide. Lord, provide for my emotional, physical, mental, spiritual needs in this 24 hours. And Lord, provide for who, think of, who's the first person to come to your mind right now? Just pray that right now. Lord, provide for Laura's emotional, physical, mental, spiritual needs in this 24 hours. I love this concept so much. I have actually written a song about it, and it sounds really self-promoting, but it, the song is called 24 because it's literally about the grace for today is not the same grace for tomorrow because that grace will be there when we need it. But it is one of the most hard things to live out in the Christian walk. But it's really the only way. And I love the idea of people praying for other people for their 
needs. They are daily bread. I honestly think praying for other people is one of the most unselfish things we can do in this world. Because if you think about it, when, we, when the Lord brings someone to your mind, for me, that's in the shower because it's like my sacred holy place. Like nobody mess with me. No one come and tell me about fighting or kids or whatever. I just want my hot shower. But that is when the Lord brings people to my mind. It's like my prayer closet. And I have to believe that that's because the Lord wants me to intercede for them, to stand in the gap for them on their behalf. And when I was going through this first year of all the heart diagnosis and, and lots of appointments, I had this big scan, and if you've ever had to do medical things, you probably know scan days are just very anxious. You just want them over. You go into those things just very tense, and it's not fun. And so I had this scan. My husband came with me, and I remember coming out of the scan and getting a text from two of my friends that live in Corvallis. And I got this text from Carrie and Karina, and it said, we drove I drove to her house and we sat at her dining room table and prayed for your scan today. And I, I wish I could, I was gonna try to find the text, but it was like years ago, I've had to spend a long time. But I could picture them driving across town to each other's house. And I could picture her dining room table and how they were praying for me. Like what an unselfish thing to do in your day to go and physically be together and pray for your friend. Give us today our daily bread. The fifth line, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you read the Luke version, it says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. That's one of the hardest things to do. When I see this line, I think it's really hard to pray for somebody by name who has hurt you, who has lied about you, who has caused you such deep grief. But for some reason, when we put their name in a prayer, it does something, I think. It kind of loosens something up because it makes them human, right? It makes them another person created by God in the image of God. It doesn't say that we have to trust these people. It doesn't say that we need to give them access to our personal lives. But it says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive these people who sin against us. And it's the, it's the distinctive of our Christianity. It's what makes us different, is forgiveness. Because that is not what the world would say to do. They would say, cancel, you know, cut them out. They are dead to you. All the things we would do. And this is the one big thing that makes our faith different, is acknowledging that we actually have sins that need to be forgiven ourselves and extending that same grace to other people. And if you need any resources on this, I personally think that Corey Ten Boom is one of the most profound people who's spoken or ever written on forgiveness. The next line, sixth line, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. As you notice, it just gets in more intense as it goes. Uh, when my daughter was really little, really small, she did this thing which teachers love. I think it's called pre-reading or pretend reading. And it's like when toddlers pretend to read a book. They, they can't actually read. But it shows early literacy and a desire to open a book. So teachers love this. And we had, 
we had we have the gratefully thankfully lots of bibles at our house but i had one that was like the thin pages you can almost see through them and when you shut it it has gold so like each page has a line of gold on it and my daughter at the time she was three or four she loved this bible because it was pretty and it was shiny and the pages she called them soft pages <laughs> and so she would open it up and pretend to read the bible it was precious she hated being videoed though. So I had to do it like stealth mode. I would have to kind of hide things. And one day I discover she's doing it and we were getting ready for bed and she wanted to tell me a story. And so I just kind of set, I had an iPad at the time. This was a long time ago. And I don't even know if I had a smartphone actually. And so I set up this iPad. It was hot, it was summer. There's an air conditioning going. But I'm gonna show you this video because this is brilliant. It is. Adam and Eve, according to Aubrey, I did get her permission. I give giving her a gift card for showing this. Not gonna lie to y'all. I had to bribe her. She, we couldn't remember because I don't even know the date on the video because this was like a couple iPads ago. But she was three or four, and this is the gospel according to Aubrey. <laughs> anyway, it is, yeah, you could clap. <laughs> Thank you, Aubrey. I mean, I could have just dissected that as a sermon. I'm sorry she throws Adam under the bus. I did not teach her that. <laughs> oh, and my husband calls everyone jokers when he's really annoyed at them <laughs> instead of other things. So that's his influence. <sighs> I mean, sin does taste good when you first bite into it, right? There's a lot of profound stuff in there. But what I want to zero in on is this part when Aubrey says, God said, where are you, Adam and Eve? We're hiding. Don't hide from me. I'm just God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. To say he's a joker is an understatement. Confession is a refusal to hide. It's literally instead of trying to run to keeping up appearances, it's running to confession and refusing to hide. It's incredible. And it's like, why would you hide from me? I'm God, I am the compassionate father, the one who believes the best in you, the one who is tenderhearted. Don't hide from me. I have only, I would say, two times in the last six months seen been a part of a situation where someone confessed something, and I'm a pastor. And one of those instances was at a women's conference I just played at recently. So there were like hundreds of women gathered at, at Beaverton Christian Church, and I was on the worship team. It was an all-female band. It was super fun because female drummers rock. And um, it was this really special day, and we, were, we, we all prayed together before in, in the green room, like everyone that was involved in the day. And then it was kind of like, amen, and we just break, everyone does their thing. And one of the musicians in the band said, she came back and she said, actually, I need to confess something. And I'm thinking, well, this like never happens usually. And she said, as women are walking in today, I just want you to know I am really struggling with body image. And as you can imagine, when you see like a thousand women in a space, like what woman doesn't really, at least on some level, compare themselves to another woman? And this person had dealt with eating 
eating disorders and struggles. And she just said, "Can I just want to pray right now. I just want to confess to you that I feel like this is going to be a hang-up for me in leading worship today if I don't just tell you this. And I will tell you, the room changed. It was like something was snuffed out. Something not good was snuffed out of the room because she confessed in this safe circle of women. I have massive respect for her. So we prayed again, and it was different than the first time we prayed. There was this sense of, like, we're all on the same page. We're all the Imago Dei, the image of God. And it was one of the most fun, enjoyable, all-female bands I've ever been a part of. Confession is a refusal to hide, and it's an acknowledgement that God can deliver us from the evil one. It's a genuine, humble, like, do not lead me into temptation. So you may be wondering, what about this last line? We haven't done like an amen yet. <laughs> what about thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. Well, you will only see this in the King James Version. and We don't have time to get into it, but it's not in the original, original manuscripts. So that's why you don't see it in your Bible. But Christians have added this kind of as a, as a closing phrase, as a benediction of sorts to the Lord's Prayer. And so that's why you've probably, if you've memorized this, you know, we don't, and I also, I like ending with something besides the evil one. I don't want to just end on that note. I want to give God the glory. And it also does come from scripture when David in first Chronicles says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty, everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. And this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. And so that's where we get our last line of the Lord's Prayer. So this is a pre-written prayer by Jesus, and we know that structured prayers help us when we don't know what else to say. Next week, when we talk about talking with God, it will be more about spontaneous personal prayers. But today, we wanted to start with a pre-written prayer, and the best one is by Jesus. And I love what Ronald Rollheiser says about these pre-written structured prayers. What clear, simple, and brief rituals provide is precisely prayer that depends upon something beyond our own energy. The rituals carry us, our tiredness, our lack of energy, our inattentiveness, our indifference, and even our occasional distaste. They keep us praying even when we are too tired to muster up our own energy. I had to bring a prop today, and I mentioned this two weeks ago in worship, but this, you guys, is my orange juice pitcher. I brought it. <laughs> if you were here... It's like literally 20 years old. It falls apart because we put it in the dishwasher. This thing comes off all the time. See, now it's not going to. But when I think of these pre-made prayers, when I think of this space of gathering with other believers, it reminds me of this because it is the best. I get my cheap orange juice with no pulp in it, and you pump it up, and it mixes everything from the bottom. It tastes so much better. And this is the beauty of these pre-made prayers. When we don't know what else to say, they give us a guide. So I want to give you some examples of that. Obviously, the Lord's Prayer is the most famous. The early church, they pray that three times a day. The Psalms, which is known as the prayer book or the hymn book of God's people, most of them were designed to be prayed. Scripture itself, you can take scripture, you can put your name in it, you can do really personal things by praying scripture back to God. Obviously singing, which I'm a big fan of. St. Augustine and also Martin Luther have been credited saying to sing is to pray twice. So 
I'm feeling like I've prayed a lot in my life. But lyrics will be the first thing you remember and the last thing you forget. Even in like the most cruel stage of dementia, people will remember lyrics when they can't remember their own name. And then liturgy, which these would be pre-made, pre-written prayers. I have one I want to highlight because I would hate to tell you all these things and not give you actual examples. This one is called Every Moment Holy. It's super small. It can fit in almost anywhere. And they just have these pre-made prayers. One is called Before You Take the Stage, which I love. It is like very simple things. There is one for doing laundry, which is my least favorite domestic task. For when you're unemployed, for first responders, for the changing of diapers. There's actually two of those prayers. For those who work in stone and metal and clay, for the enjoyment of bonfires, for sunsets, for stargazing, for gardening, before beginning a book. It goes on and on from everything from the anniversary of a loss of a loved one to just the most simple things like before a meal. And they're just small, short prayers. And then lastly, in this day and age, we have amazing prayer apps. My very personal favorite one is called Lectio 365, meaning one for every day of the year. There are readers from all over the world, so you can hear someone in a lovely, deep, rich British voice praying for you. <laughs> um, and I just, you just push play. It's like 10 minutes long. They have one for morning and night. I would say, honestly, Lectio 365 is how I didn't go insane during COVID. <clears throat> but prayer doesn't necessarily need to be like a form letter we learned in school. We don't need to say, dear God, comma. <laughs> Some prayers will be scripted and others will be spontaneous, which we'll talk about next week. And some honestly will be breath prayers where you just say the name of Jesus because that is all that you can say. But my encouragement to you today and what you'll find in our prayer journals, and they're free, we have tons of them if you haven't got one yet, is to try to create a daily prayer rhythm. Don't think of this as homework. Don't think like you're going to stink at this. But just find something that works with your personality and not against it. Because I believe there can be hard-fought, hard-won intimacy if you stay in the conversation with Jesus. Keep talking to God. It's my favorite thing in probably almost all of Scripture is that Jesus, even in his worst moment on the cross, kept talking to God. In fact, he went to a pre-made prayer. He went to Psalm 22 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even in his worst moment, even when he knew what the outcome would be, he still talked to God. And so as we close today, I'd like to just invite the worship team up and I invite you to stand and we're just going to pray the Lord's prayer together. And I just invite you to kind of shake it out, re-get a different spot with your body, and just close your eyes. And if you want to extend your hands, you can. I'm just going to say the Lord's Prayer. And I invite you, it won't be on the screen, but I invite you to say whatever version maybe you know, or if you don't know, that's okay. You could just listen. We might have different words. That's okay. And we're just going to pray this slowly together. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.